Welcome to today's special edition of This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley. I'm your host, Sunil Rajaraman. At the start of the coronavirus pandemic, we were all trying to figure out what was going on. In part to make sense of it myself, I released a separate podcast called Distanced to have conversations with several people from around the world about their initial experiences during life in lockdown. Those conversations ranged from a great discussion with a Stanford doctor about his initial expectations for the virus, to a technology executive from Shanghai about how China dealt with the social and economic situations that face them. I'm releasing those episodes as part of the main podcast today, and Yasha and I will be making our glorious return to podcasting soon. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy these discussions because they show how far we've come, yet how far we still have to go. Welcome to Distanced, a podcast about people around the world who are dealing with life in quarantine during the age of the coronavirus. I'm your host, Sunil Rajaraman, and I'm recording from my home in San Mateo, California. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the first episode of Distanced. Um, you know, these are pretty crazy times in the world right now, and I originally started this podcast just as a way to benchmark how everybody's doing and feeling against, you know, people in different cities who are going through very, very different things right now. And so, you know, I noticed on my Facebook feed, there are people all around the world and all around the country that have been in lockdown for weeks or months. And we have no idea what they're experiencing right now and how that experience compares to our own. And so think of this podcast as a way to kind of both benchmark against your own feelings and manage your own anxiety and psychology around things that you might be worried about, like your job, your family. When will you be able to go out and get a haircut again? Go out and get some food. And I even spent some time talking to people from um, the medical community and other places. And I just want this to be a place where you can come and figure out what are others experiencing and is my own experience normal? And is there a brighter future ahead? Because those are things that I am worried about as I think about the, the world after we've been in this unprecedented situation. So every episode, my plan is to talk to someone from a different city. I started in China, in Shanghai, and I have a dear friend there from college, Austin, who uh, started talking about life once he came out of quarantine and commenting on other people's statuses and saying, hey... You know, I'm six or eight weeks ahead of you here, and this is what I'm seeing uh, in China. And I spent about a good hour with him talking about everything from when he first discovered coronavirus was a problem, whether he trusts the data that's coming out of China, and how the country was able to mobilize so quickly and bring down cases so so fast. And we talk about that and a bunch of other things, including the origin of the virus itself. And you know, I leave this interview thinking both positive and negative thoughts about the future, but 
this is going to be a long, long battle. And um, I, I hope that you take away from this episode some positive nuggets, but, but please be wary that we have a long way to go here in the U.S. So please enjoy today's interview with Austin Shepard, who is a software engineer from Shanghai, China. Austin, uh, thanks for joining me from, from Shanghai. I, I, you and I have some history. We do, we do. We both went to Claremont McKenna College together back in the late 90s and uh, spent some time together in, uh, in the same dorm, I believe. We did. And, and for the record, I graduated in the early 2000s, just so we don't, we don't <laughs> age myself too much. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, and we, we reconnected through what everybody seems to be reconnecting through these days, which is coronavirus. We did, yeah. That that brought us together. Coronavirus has has really revived uh, Facebook as a social messaging platform as well. At least for me, I'm I'm finding uh, Facebook to provide much more utility and value in my life now than it has in years. <laughs> so that it's been, uh, you know, despite the fact that the coronavirus has, has really upended all of our lives, it's been a, a great reason to reconnect. Yeah, it, it really is. If there is a positive thing to take from all of this, I find myself on the phone more, messaging people more and interacting with people yeah. I, I really, you know, needed to kind of reconnect with. Yeah, likewise, likewise, even over here in, in China. So um, I think, I mean, there's a lot I want to try to cover and it's going to be a bunch of information. I mean, the reason I started this, as you know, is to to get a sense of different cities, what they're facing right now, where they've been. And it almost acts as a snapshot in time for those of us in the States where we're behind China right now in terms of timeline. And yeah. you're in the future. And so can you talk about when you knew that this was going to be a major problem? Yeah, absolutely. So we, we did have a, a couple of months head start on the rest of the world here. And, um, I'll replay for you the, the first couple of weeks for me, kind of the, the major things that, that happened uh, here and um, how, how it all unfolded. Um, I remember very specifically the first time I heard about this coronavirus situation. I, I, I believe that the, the first known cases happened in, in Wuhan back in December of 2019. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it didn't really make um, broad enough news in in late December or early January for me to really have heard much about it. Um, January twentieth, though, I was uh, hosting a meeting at work, and and I, I work with all Chinese locals. I'm, I'm the only foreigner with with a team of of a bunch of local Chinese, and I was I was hosting a, a meeting with my entire team, which I only do about once a quarter or so. It's about a hundred people in a room and we covered a bunch of work related topics and uh, right at the end had normal question and answer. And uh, somebody asked a question and said, I just want to know Chinese new year is coming up in a few days. Is anybody traveling to Wuhan? And I said, well, that's an awfully interesting question, Samuel. That's, uh, that's it's, it's not a super common place for, for people to go. Wuhan sure is a city of 11 million people, but we've got you know dozens of those here in China. Well, why, why are you asking that? 
And if I could, and, and if I could ask, a, and if I could ask, a, I yeah. really want to hear the rest of the story, but um, and and curious to hear about how this anecdote plays out. But the the thing that Americans would want to ask at this point, which is probably a fairly typical question, is what. Why didn't you hear about it sooner? Was there some element of, you know, hey, we're going to control mm. the narrative? Because that, that feels feels far. Like you said, January, what was the date on that meeting? January 20th. And so January 20th. I feel so, like, I, like yeah. I saw like a Drudge Report headline or something about it far sooner than that. Yeah, and, and, and you probably did. Most likely you did. So it, it was out there in the media from, I want to say, around early January, okay? Um, so it, it was out there. I just wasn't paying attention to it. And um, frankly, I don't pay attention to a lot of local Chinese media um, unless my wife brings something to my attention, right? Um, my wife is, is Chinese, and she's kind of my, my filter, right? I don't read Chinese well enough to be able to stay on top of the the local uh, Chinese media outlets or blogs or anything like that. But but if something's hot, she, she usually uh, lets me know. So the story was definitely out there, um, but it, it wasn't huge quite yet. It started to get huge um, around the middle of January, okay? Um, now, we do know in retrospect that in the first few weeks, um, there were some attempts made by by local government officials in Wuhan and Hubei province to um, to keep the story quiet um, do not label the uh, the viruses as something that was um, you know potential pandemic um, those types of things but um, uh, you know the, the the real reason that this wasn't a big story yet was just because it it was very local right and um i think people didn't really know um how much to quite make of it yet and so going back to your and going back to your meeting and so as you know samuel uh asked the question about traveling to wuhan and so keep yeah keep going yeah 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 no no problem so he said well you know there there was this uh virus outbreak in wuhan and uh it seems seems pretty scary and it comes from uh from a wet market there and um, just want to make sure that anybody that's traveling there takes precautions. And I said, wow, that's, that's really interesting. I actually had no idea, but, uh, thanks for sharing that. Um, and, uh, just, it's like the floodgates opened after that moment. That was, that was Monday afternoon, the week of, of Chinese New Year. And it seems like from the moment Samuel asked that question, every single hour, um, for really the rest of my life, <laughs> was uh, um, filled with coronavirus news. So we all uh, left for the, the Chinese New Year holiday. It started on January 24th, right, which was Friday of, of that same week. So um, I think one reason that it really started to get a lot of focus attention, um, not only domestically here in China, but internationally, right, we knew enough to know that um, we've got this, crazy new virus and infection in Wuhan, and it seems to be very, very, very contagious. Um, and we're right up on the, the heels of the largest migration in, in human history, which happens every year, Chinese New Year, over a billion people um, traveling uh, from wherever they're working to wherever their hometown is. And so um, 
we were freaking out in China about uh, that Chinese New Year travel explosion, um, seeing gasoline thrown on the fire of this this uh, this new virus, right? Um, so we had just barely enough time in those couple of days before Chinese New Year for um, people that hadn't started traveling yet to make a, a decision, were they going to cancel their plans and just hunker down at home? And my anecdote 11 is based on my, uh, my social circle, um, the, the folks that I work with. I'd say over 60% of, of people um, that last week before Chinese New Year here in Shanghai decided to cancel their, their plans and just hunker down in their apartment um, at home because they were scared of um, potentially being introduced to this, this virus either on a plane or on a train or wherever they were planning on heading to before. So there's so um, much to, to unpack here. <clears throat> so I'll interrupt you yeah. periodically with questions. So very no scary. Um, I don't think that there was the collective panic. There wasn't a moment like that uh, where we experienced that over here in part because I think you you know, pointed out the largest migration that happens every year in human history. It's, it feels like that, that that is a focal point in an event that people can yeah. really, and I almost wish in a way that there was something like that, that we could all say, hey, you know, we, we shouldn't travel, we shouldn't do anything, but there wasn't that moment here, as I would, as right. I would say. Could you explain to, you know, people who might be listening to this, and I've done some reading on this, but what is a wet market? Because this seems to be a big question yeah. that a lot of friends I, I know have, and that is allegedly where SARS also originated, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. That's right. So a wet market is a traditional outdoor market um, that sells uh, food. And um, it's, it's kind of like a, a, a sundries and, and food grocery market. Um, that you would find really in any city uh, throughout the world. These, these aren't um, specific to, to China, certainly, but um, there are a lot of them in, in China. Um, They're in India as well. People, They're in India and, yeah, and, and exactly. Vietnam. Exactly. You'll find them in India, Vietnam, South America. I've, I've seen them all, all over the world. Um, but yeah, we, we do have them here in, in China. And while most people in big cities, even like Wuhan, still that they go to uh, you know, grocery stores like we're used to in the United States. You know, um, places that look not much different from Whole Foods or, or Safeway. Um, these wet markets still do uh, exist, and and uh, their their primary patrons are um, lower middle class locals or or tourists, right? So these these wet markets. Uh, you, they're kind of like a, um, like a not so upscale farmers market, right? So picture a farmers market in, in the U.S., but um, not cheesy, right? Um, you can go find anything from um, fruits and vegetables to to fish and raw meat. And this particular wet market in Wuhan was very famous for um, having strange exotic animals available for, for sale that, that people generally would buy for the purpose of eating. Um, so this, this, this wet market in Wuhan is, is not, a, not a standard wet market. I've traveled to Wuhan three times to, to do uh, university recruiting for my job. And every time I'd been to Wuhan, locals told me about this, this market that was famous for selling weird stuff. Right? So even local Chinese consider it to be weird to go 
um, and be able to buy a, a bat or a pangolin or something like that for the purpose. Of teaching, what right? is the, it what is, is the, of, you know, and so there's obvious like just cultural differences that, yeah. you know, as I talk to people around the world, I'm talking to people from Spain and Italy is part of this, hopefully. Um, what is the, like, what is the appeal? Is there, is there like, is there a backstory to why, um, you know, wet markets are, are, or eating exotic animals? Is that, is there, is there something culturally that is like, you know, legend or something? I just, do you know any of the backstory? Right. So, well, well wet, wet market and exotic animals, they're, they're one and the same. I want to make sure we get that distinction out there. There's, there's plenty of wet markets uh, all throughout China, which are just like normal farmer's markets where you would not be able to buy crazy exotic animals. That's probably the vast majority of them, right? In, in my own personal anecdotal experience, that's like 99% of it. Um, and like I said, uh, Wuhan and, and this particular market was, was famous for that. There are a couple of regions of the country that are more famous for um, more exotic uh, animals or, or, or foods being either available or, or more common than we're used to in, in the U.S., um, so got it. I, so this I, is I like any wet market. I've seen some in, in, you know, yeah, except this one yeah. is a little bit more extreme and in, in short, uh, this it, particular it, one. Exactly. Now th that said though, right. Um, there, there are, um, elements of Chinese cuisine that incorporate, um, more animals and more parts of the animal than, than we're certainly used to in, in the U S. Right. Yeah, what I'm um, trying to unpack that, is that, is exactly the point yeah. that you made, which is, you know, I think that there's a a thread going around that this is somehow a China virus or, you know, something specific to right. that, which is not the case. I mean, wet markets exist anywhere and there is probably yeah. a pandemic risk at any number of these places anywhere in the world at this Absolutely. given moment. And, and, and also uh, another point to to make is you know officially the the sale of these wild animals as far as i know was actually officially illegal right it's it's it, it was not condoned by uh by the local authorities it goes against health code um i, I think the general knowledge was that yes it happened right and so there wasn't wasn't enforcement um of of those restrictions but it's it's not normal to be able to go and buy you know a pangolin that's been you know sitting next to uh, a bat and a chicken and and fish right that's it's not normal yeah um it, you know really really good points and you know can can happen pretty much anywhere um anyway the you know going now to the you know so we've talked a little bit about the about the cause um and the origin but let's talk about the effect so you have this moment yeah. in this meeting where, you know, okay, you realize that this is a problem. Now, from that point forward, you know, explain how your life either gradually or suddenly changes. Yep, yep. So um, it, it was gradual for the first few days. Um, and in many ways, we were, we were lucky that we had this Chinese New Year thing um, upon us because we were already not going to be working right for at least a week so it's a week-long holiday um and and like you said this was a forcing function for us to have that you know, holy shit moment you know should we should we pay close attention to this and uh, reconsider whether we're going to be doing all of the traveling that we had originally planned on but those uh first 
three days or so of, of the Chinese New Year holiday. Um, we, we all respectively, wherever we, we were, I happened to be in Thailand. I, I chose to still travel with, with my wife. But, um, you know, my, my friends and colleagues here in Shanghai did the same thing. We just watched the news and, and really paid particular attention to, to WeChat um, nonstop here for, for new, new news and, and rumors about the virus. And WeChat, so, um, you know, for, for the American audience, which will be the primary audience, I mean, WeChat is literally everything in China. I mean, you do everything there, right? I mean, it's, you can't function in China yeah, without it's, WeChat. It's, it's a super app, um, they call it. it. It's kind of like a, um, it's a combination of Facebook and Twitter and Google and, and, uh, and iMessage and everything else all at once. Um, you, you use it to, to buy things, you use it to message. Yeah, it's, it's the the end all be all. So we we spend you know, tons of time on WeChat, more more time on WeChat than we do you know, using Safari or Chrome to, to browse the the internet, right? So um, so we're all paying attention, right? It's it's clear that this thing is is blowing up. We we can tell that the situation in Wuhan is getting extremely scary, and and also that cases are starting to um, be reported throughout all of China, right? It wasn't just contained to just Wuhan or Hubei province anymore. Um, but uh, it, it hadn't really started to dramatically impact anybody's lives yet. Everybody um, outside of, I should say, Wuhan and, and, and Hubei, right? which, which was a, a different story. But for those of us in Shanghai or, or Thailand, right, we're just hunkering down wherever we were, paying attention to the news and, and waiting to hear more. Um, by about the fifth day or so of the Chinese New Year holiday, the government announced a countrywide extension of Chinese New Year by another eight days or so. Um, so they, uh, they, they required that everybody stay home or stay at least away from work, um, encourage people not to travel all at the same time, right? And what we thought at that point in time was that the main reason for the extension of the holiday was just to um, to try and spread out the back end of travel from Chinese New Year. So not everybody was traveling back home all on the same day, right? Think well, that so so what's we really interesting still- about that is, you know, and so hearing, hearing this and how organized it is, I mean, one thing that jumps out is, you know, we don't have that, you know, we didn't have the unifying event. We didn't have mm-hmm. the app that everybody is on that can consolidate people right. in a way that is just almost unfathomable here here in this country. Um, which is you know which is neither a good thing nor a bad thing, right? I think we can we could debate the merits you know back and forth all we want, but in this particular case, it seems like it worked to your advantage to mobilize people very very quickly. Definitely. Uh, everybody uh, was, was all reading from the, the same source. And yeah, th- things were, were organized and um, centralized in that, yes, that, that first move to extend Chinese New Year, right? That, that was a, a countrywide uh, move. But what's interesting, Sunil, is, is after that, even though things stayed very, very, very organized, they weren't nearly as, as centralized after that one big extension of Chinese New Year. Um, and, and also, they, they weren't, in my experience, draconian top-down measures I- either. Um, 
I've, I've posted a few things in, on Facebook over the last few weeks about what life in China has been like here in the last couple of months. And I started doing that after um, reading the word draconian one too many times as an adjective describing um, how, how China handled the uh, the coronavirus outbreak here. Well, let's um, let's talk about that. It, let's 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 talk about yeah. that a little bit more. I, there were a couple more questions that I wanted to make sure to uh, to to ask before I forget. One is, you know, absolutely distancing, and so you know, a word that is being used a lot in America right now is uh, two words: social distancing. And it's yeah, uh, and it's we got to stay six feet away from each other. I mean, and it is right. You know, people aren't. It depends on the city where you're in, but people are doing varying jobs of this. Did you have the equivalent of that term, social distancing, and how is that even practically possible in a city as dense as Shanghai? <laughs> yeah, that's that's crazy, isn't it? Um, I I wouldn't have thought that it would have been possible either. And what's what's also crazy is I had never heard the term social distancing until probably about a month ago. Or so, right? Even though we, we started practicing and experiencing a lot of this stuff here in China like nine weeks ago. Um, so we, we did not have that, um, that catchphrase, social distancing. Um, but we certainly did have, have the practice. So let, let me talk a little bit about how that happened and, and what that was like. Um, so, uh, around the first of February or so, um, right in the middle of this extended Chinese New Year holiday. Um, most cities throughout China started to unofficially lock down, okay? Um, unofficially in that it, it wasn't legally mandated. You, you weren't gonna go to, to prison if, if you didn't comply, but it was, it was extremely organized, but at a, at a hyper-local level. So um, all across the country, um, apartment compounds started sealing up all of their entrances except for one, right? So they controlled access in and out of the apartment compound. And they started uh, implementing um, a lot more access requirements, right? So in order to get into an apartment compound, you had to prove that you lived there, right? And, and they would refuse you entry if, if you didn't have proof of, of residence or ownership, right? Um, so that was, that was organized, but as far as I could tell, not mandated on a very big, national level. It was more organized on a um, community by community, county by county, neighborhood by neighborhood level. Um, naturally, without there having to be a law for people to do it, everybody just started wearing masks all the time. Outdoors. So let's um, talk about the mask thing for a second. The masks help, yeah. do they not? Well, we believe that they help. So th there's there's a culture of wearing masks in Asia that just doesn't exist in, in the West. Wearing masks isn't isn't weird here in, in China or throughout many many Eastern Asian countries. Um, I, I think part of it might be because Asia did experience SARS right back in um, 2003 2004. Um, there's also you know, pretty significant air pollution in cities like. Beijing here, right? And um, it's, it's not uncommon for people to wear masks either to protect themselves or to protect others. It's, it's extremely common for, um, for, for people that work with me, for example, if, if they're feeling a little under the weather, 
they'll wear a mask out of respect for everybody else and they're not spreading their, their germs, right? So um, you, you certainly didn't have the same kind of situation um, that you have now a few months ago where everybody ubiquitously is wearing masks. But seeing people wearing masks out in public or even in the office wasn't weird before. Interesting. Right? But uh, come Chinese New Year this year, everybody started wearing masks uniformly across the board all the time, right? And, and we experienced a, a mask shortage probably right around, uh, you know, February 3rd, February 4th. You couldn't find a mask anywhere because everybody had stocked up on those the, the same way that they did on toilet paper in the U.S. And hand sanitizer. Do you, uh, I guess, do you use hand sanitizer in China um, to the extent that we do here in, in the U.S.? Is that a thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it is a thing. And, um, yeah, it was, it was hard to find those, those first couple of weeks or so, but it's everywhere. Now you can find it in, in any grocery store easily. And most office buildings and businesses, you know, grocery stores, Starbucks, Taco Bell, um, et cetera, they'll have a, a big vat of sanitizer, uh, right at the, the entrance for everybody to, uh, to partake in. So, um, so in yeah, China, I mean, that. You know, sorry, I'm just so fascinated, and I know we we have a latency yeah. issue because I'm um we're recording this on FaceTime audio, and there's like a slight delay. So, apologies to our listeners. But, um, I did you have like a a grocery run trip where you just stocked up on a <laughs> bunch of stuff? Like, did you did you do that, or what? What was the well? Yes and no. So, um, the first one thing to consider, um, is that our living spaces in China are super, super, super small compared to the U.S., even small compared to, to San Francisco or New York, right? So there's there's no space in our homes here to store up on a bunch of bulk stuff, okay, number one. Number two, um, we opened our first Costco here in, in Shanghai like a year ago, but stores like that are a huge novelty, right? For, for the most part, we do our grocery shopping at places that are – you know, not much bigger than a bodega on, on average, right? But um, the biggest ones being the size of a small whole food, right? So um, stocking up is, isn't something that we do. It's not something that we have space for. It's not something that stores have um, shelf, shelving space for or, or anything else, okay? So that's consideration one. Um, consideration two, um, we have a super great infrastructure for um, food delivery here. Right. And it was clear in the early days that um, food delivery was considered to be an essential service that was going to uh, to stay alive throughout uh, this, this lockdown period, how, however long it was going to last. Right. So. Um, so so on, including uh, myself. Go ahead. Sorry. Sorry about that, Austin. Keep going. Oh, no, no worries. People, including myself, we had a high level of confidence that we'd be able to get food right delivered to uh, to an access point that, that we could get to. Um, at any point in time, and so that we wouldn't need to stock up on, on, on food. And right? on the subject we, of food, I, you know, like so, so mm-hmm. really curious because delivery services here, we're we're experiencing some some similar booms in services like Instacart, DoorDash, Uber Eats, who have right. you know gone out of their way to waive delivery fees, which is great. Um, there is, you know, varying information and paranoia levels on. Well, is it safe to do delivery because the yeah. Delivery person can potentially expose you to, you know, the virus and yeah. la- layering yeah. on top of that. And so I'd love for you to, you know, 
talk about how, you know, how that information was presented to you and whether it is, was in fact safe. But in addition to that, you know, the quote unquote essential workers who are not being paid much are putting their themselves at risk. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know how China addressed that. Yeah. Yeah. And I I don't know how China addressed it in terms of uh, protecting them and and making sure that they're, their their working conditions were safe um it'd be interesting to to talk to somebody that that actually experienced that firsthand but i can tell you from my observation that um all of these food delivery workers um were 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 decked out head to toe in protective gear right so wearing um wearing gloves and and masks and, and and frankly full body suits that weren't quite hazmat suits but pretty darn close right so um their their bodies were were shielded um, number one. Uh, number two, um, for about six weeks or so, hand-to-hand and door-to-door delivery was prohibited. So every apartment complex, every neighborhood had to have a, a drop-off point where the, uh, the food delivery associate could, could drop off your food and the food had to be in a plastic bag or, or a similar container that, um, uh, gave you the confidence that nobody was touching your food that didn't prepare it. Um, so no hand-to-hand delivery. And, and also, this was extremely interesting. Um, every package of food also had this uh, little piece of paper um, attached to the outside of it, which, which was a table of every single person that had touched your food, um, their name, and their body temperature in the time that that was recorded, right? So, so typically you you would see three different names and, and three different times of body temperatures on on a piece of paper outside of a, a bag. That of, is that uh, is mind blowing. It is absolutely mind blowing. Yeah. Like so, um, yeah. you know, we're doing our best to kind of support local restaurants here, and I know that uh, the Bay Area has been very very good. I have to say um, about trying you know trying to come together, but a lot of businesses are suffering. We're we're ordering Uber Eats here and there. There is not the level of um, protection that you're describing. However, I mean, we live in a neighborhood where we don't do, we're not doing hand-to-hand deliveries. They are leaving it at the door. Um, right. Nevertheless, um, you know, just hearing about things like temperature checks and the extent to which, um, you know, they're protecting workers and, you know, potential patrons is, it's pretty mind-blowing. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it was mind blowing. Um, so I, um, I don't remember being told um, either by social media or by the government or, or the press in general how safe food delivery was. Um, but I, I felt like I didn't need to because it just it felt really safe, right? And, and similarly, even though I, I didn't ride you know, DD, which is our, our version of, of Uber over here, or the subway, very often during those first few weeks, I felt very safe doing it when I had to just because um, there there were visible precautions being taken uh, everywhere. You, you get in a taxi and um, uh, the, um, the front is partitioned off from the back. There's saran wrap everywhere. It smells like bleach, right? Um, th- there's no way for you to, to actually, you know, get within a couple of feet of, of your taxi driver. So it, this all just felt extremely safe. And, and I'll also say that this, this reminds me of another point I wanted to make about the masks, right? Um, the fact that 
everybody wore masks all the time, I think heightened all of our self-consciousness, our awareness about the situation, right? And um, it, it forced us to go inside our heads a little bit because it, you could feel the damn thing on your face all the time, right? And it, it obstructs your breathing a little bit. It's, it's hard to ignore. And so it makes you think about the fact that you're in a non-natural situation here. You could potentially be a carrier. Anybody else around you could potentially be a carrier, right? And, and it just forces you to be um, much more conscious about every action that you take, right? Including washing your hands more thoroughly and, uh, you know, uh, many more times a day and, and, and for longer, um, including staying away from, from other people. And you know, even though we, we didn't have that term social distancing here in, in China, right, we, we all just kind of practiced it because uh, it just felt like the the logical thing to do. So, <laughs> um, so I, yeah, this is really, I mean, I, I, I love hearing this take, which is obviously very different than what, um, you know, American media necessarily portrays it as. And so, right. you know, what you're describing is, um, you know, a society coming together over essentially a massive event and having the ability to coordinate over WeChat, but then kind of adopting right. norms without the pressure that is, you know, sometimes the American media may, may say that it's, it's, you know, severe and draconian as you put it, but that's not what you're describing here. Right. Certainly not the, the way that it felt, right? Um, and you know, there, there, there were certain top-down actions that, that mostly happened at the extremely local level again, like the, the neighborhood level, the apartment compound level that were um, a pain in the neck, right? Made your life more inconvenient. Like I've, I've already described the fact that we, we, we couldn't have food delivered to our doorstep anymore, right? We had to walk you know, 10 minutes away to go pick it up. Um, that was an inconvenience. The fact that coming into the apartment compound, we had to have our temperature recorded and and, and had to show proof of residence. That was a, 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 a an inconvenience, right? Um, but my my feeling, as well as the feeling of my family, my friends, my coworkers, about that inconvenience was we were grateful for it because it it, it felt like um, the right thing to do. Um, as a precaution to, to fight the spread of the virus, right? And so um, nobody complained about any of those inconveniences. And then you saw on social media, you know, those, those first couple of weeks, um, people saying things like, hey, th this is a war. We're going to defeat this virus. We're, we're, we're going to do this together. People just encouraging each other within their friend circles to do things like, um, like wear masks, and stay at home and uh, don't crowd in elevators and, and, and those types of things um, as, as, as part of solidarity in fighting a war against this in invisible enemy. So, um, uh, so that's what it, it felt like. It, yeah. Bunch, bunch more uh, uh, questions. I'm going to do my best to consolidate them in the next sure. 10, 10 to 15 Go minutes ahead. here. But the, you know, the, you know, it is important to point out that, all these narratives can be true. I mean, I, in the same way yeah. that you and I are in a somewhat position of, you know, privilege in our respective societies, probably other people have a completely different experience and it might feel a little bit more draconian. And, yeah. um, and so just want to point that out to our listeners who might be cringing at this and thinking, well, it, it wasn't totally like that. <laughs> um, I, I do, um, 
want to ask the stats question because that is a question that comes up with America all the time and the way that um, Americans think of, you know, the way the virus is being portrayed in China, a large percentage of people probably think that the stats are not really representative. That can't be true. What would you say to someone who made that comment to you? Yeah. I, uh, so one, I understand that point of view. I understand the, the distrust right, of, of official numbers being published um, by the government. Right. And um, there's the same level of skepticism um here in china or, or there certainly was in those first couple of weeks right are the numbers real what are they hiding right is this worse than they're making it out to be or is it not as bad as they're making it out to be um so i don't know if the numbers are exactly accurate or not but i'll also say i don't know if the numbers any country is, is publishing are exactly accurate or not either um but but but, but i can tell you a, a couple of things that reassure me that um at least now, and in the last, uh, let's call it two months or so, I I don't think that there's a big cover-up going on, um, and, and here's why, right? So um, the the first two weeks or so of, of February, the, uh, the n- numbers for us in China, um, they looked scary as shit, right? Like we, uh, we, we started to see... Um, Every single city, every single province, you know, crop up with double digits and triple digits and sometimes quadruple digit numbers of, of cases and, and people starting to die. And like it, it looked scary. Right. And, and there was no frame of reference. Remember, back then, any other country to, to compare it to. There was no Italy curve. There was no Spain curve. There was no America curve. It was just China. Right. And, and, and it was like going from, you know, a handful of cases in Wuhan to all of a sudden by the uh, by the end of Chinese New Year, it was like, holy cow, there's uh there's a hundred cases in Shanghai. There's a hundred cases in Beijing, and there's several thousand in, in Wuhan, right? So um, that um, that that didn't feel um, like they were trying to sweep it under the rug. Whether the numbers were were fudged or not, right? Um, it, it it felt like, hey, this is um, this is a serious situation, right? Um, then also anecdotally, I can tell you those those numbers um, in in big cities like Shanghai and Beijing, right, incredibly dense uh, cities of over 20 million people apiece, a right, largely the virus outbreak was kept under control in those big cities, right. Um, we, we never got more than, than a few hundred uh, confirmed cases of, of the virus in, in any of those big cities. Um, and I can tell you just anecdotally, right, I, I've got fairly substantial networks in both Beijing and Shanghai. Um, I've lived in both cities for several years. I don't know anybody like even like four degrees separated from me, right. That even knows of a suspected case here. Right. Wow. Anybody, anybody. Right. Now I've, 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 I've heard stories of buildings being put on official quarantine or lockdown or, or, um, you know, people having to, uh, to go to, um, temperature check centers or um, those types of things because they were deemed to have been at risk. You know, an example of that is a couple of weeks ago, somebody in my apartment compound um, flew back to Shanghai from a country that was deemed high risk. It may have been Italy, something like that, right? Um, This person was tested at the airport, right? Um, And uh, their test came back negative, right? But... um, 
this this person's uh, building was was put on um, unofficial quarantine, right? The entire uh, apartment building, right? And everybody in the building was tested. Um, so, um, you know, I heard tons of stories like that, right? Of um, extremely aggressive testing, um, extremely aggressive quarantining, some of it being opt-in and voluntary, some of it being um, mandatory, but I really didn't hear any stories of, of people even thinking that they were sick. So, so, uh, that, right? so that, that's, that's pretty, you know, pretty incredible. And I know that uh, even through anecdote, that is pretty powerful. I mean, we're at the stage where I'm starting to see posts in my Facebook feed where, you know, people I know are sick and yeah. Yeah, I remember the first one, then I remember the second one, then I remember the third one. Now I saw the fourth one. Um, and it is anxiety inducing. Uh, and so we're still at that stage yeah. where, where it's happening. You know, the, the two or three more questions I want to ask you before we wrap up this conversation is, you know, another, and in future episodes, um, we're going to dig into kind of the more cultural ramifications, but economically, you know, I don't know enough about, um, you know, how China works to understand the ramifications, but do you even have the concept of this this notion of hundreds of thousands of small businesses potentially dying overnight yeah. or restaurants? Is that yeah. is that a thing? And how has the government yeah. responded? Yeah, it it is a thing, and it's um it's it's happening. It, it has happened, um, and the government has taken some actions, but they they clearly have not taken enough action to, to save all of them. Um, nor do I know whether they even can or not. So um, I, I can tell you, uh, again, anecdotally, walking around the city as things are starting to open back up right now, people are going back to work, right, and going to shopping malls and uh, recreating a little bit. Um, I, I, I'd have to tell you that eyeball test tells me about 30, 40% of small businesses, uh, small storefronts are, are closed down. Now that used to be open three months ago, right? And uh, that's you know, incredible and shocking. And yeah, yeah, what does that do to the the business owners? And you know, has unemployment just skyrocketed? Like, what what's the what's yeah? The best guess is that the unemployment probably has skyrocketed, but I, you know, we, we don't have uh, the same types of reporting numbers here in China as uh, as you do back in the U.S. So I don't know what those look like now, number one. And, and number two, it's, it's a little bit early, right? So um, it's hard to tell how many of the, these businesses just shut down temporarily and, and decided to come back when, when things were back to normal versus how many shut down completely. Don't really know. Don't really know. Um, I, I can tell you, though, anecdotally, right, I, I know of, of people and business owners in, in both camps. For sure. Um, and I, I would have to suspect that a lot of self-employed people are completely out of income right now. What about the um, relationship with, you know, U.S. companies? Because obviously a lot of companies manufacture, I think, in, in Hubei province. Is that, if I'm not mistaken? Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah, what? yeah there, there is a lot of manufacturing in, in Hubei province. Um yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I, I work in, in software engineering and in the internet industry. We don't do manufacturing. We just write code, right? And so um, um, it hasn't impacted our business here, but, but 
what I hear is um, companies that have a single point of failure um, dependency on manufacturing in China or some type of supply chain in, in China is that, uh, you know, they, those companies are looking to distribute their risk um, outside of just China, right? And so certainly expect that there is going to be a lot of movement of manufacturing um, from China to, to other places. But a lot of that manufacturing right now, just like it's, um, it's slowed down back in January and it hasn't sped back up to, to normal conditions yet. Right. Yeah. The worldwide situation is going to be crazy. I I don't know how it's going to play out. Exactly. Exactly. We don't know here either. Right. So like, yeah, we're, we're starting to emerge from the fog a little bit and we're, we're able to, uh, to go into the office, right. If, If we've got a, a white collar software engineering job, right? And we're, we're able to go to the grocery store and we're able to go have a, a coffee while we're wearing our, our masks outdoors. But like, it, it still feels, um, honestly, years away from, from the way things used to be still, right? And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard, to, hard to believe that anything will actually get back to the way it was in December 2019. It just it doesn't feel possible to, to be honest with you. That's unbelievable. I mean, just to hear that is a bit scary and part of the reason why I wanted to start this this podcast is just getting yeah. a snapshot into the future and you are in the future and you feel this way. Um a couple more questions. One is just quarantine life. I mean, how long were you, you know, mostly in your is it apartment and yeah, apartment. How how yeah. long were you stuck there? Where and like, did you go outside? Were you able to do anything like that? And how did you manage yeah. your own psychology during that period? Yeah, good good question. So, um, I was mostly hunkered up at home with my my wife and pets. Between the time we got back from Chinese New Year, um, we were in Thailand until February fourth. I'd say we we didn't really leave our apartment much at all um for a month for, for a month so um during that that first month that first four or five weeks or so um we would leave our apartment i'd say maximum two times a day sometimes zero most days it was one and and that one time a day was was typically just to to go get essentials if we needed essentials right um bottles of water um you know, food staples, those types of things. And, and on days when we didn't need to stock up on any essentials, but we just needed to get out of the house, right? Uh, we'd, we'd, we'd go out and, and walk our dogs somewhere that uh, wasn't um, wasn't congested, or we would go to the one place that we knew that we could still order a coffee and go get a takeout coffee. Um, but we, we, we largely just stayed at home, hold up at home, um, you know, 23.75 hours a day for about a month um, and uh, worked a lot. I, I'd say that was the, the biggest change. It was, was not just me, wasn't just my wife and, and me, but everybody that we know, right? Our friends, our coworkers, everybody coped by working a lot. Incredible. More. Did you, uh, um, did yeah. you gain weight? Yeah, definitely. I, I gained probably about, 10, 15 pounds, a lot. Did you, uh, <laughs> so did you I was, drink I was more? Sitting on my ass. No, no, I, I, I didn't. I, I ate junk food more, though. You know, ate things like uh, cookies and cakes 
and uh, you know, once my my favorite pizza place reopened, which it took about three weeks for them to do that, I, I went through a stretch of ordering pizza like six nights a week. Um, That's incredible. So, no, not 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 a lot of drinking, but a hell of a lot of uh, junk food eating. So um, so yeah, we, one month of this and a lot of a lot of watching, yeah. I assume. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We uh, we did tons of, of, of binge watching, my, my wife and I. So, um, you know, we were we were working our asses off during the day, but um, at night and then all weekend long, we would just watch freaking hours of TV. So I, I remember we, we got through like all eight seasons of, of Homeland on, on Hulu in probably two weeks or so, right? <laughs> and we've, we've been through a few other uh, series, just binge watch them back to back. That got old after about five or six weeks, right? It, it, it was fun at first. It really was, to, to, to tell you the, the honest truth. But once it got into about mid-March or so, it was like, oh, my God, I'm fucking tired of this. I'm getting, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling fat. My, my clothes don't fit anymore. I'm sick of eating the same goddamn pizza every day, right? I'm, I'm sick of sitting on my couch and watching Netflix for six hours at a time. Um, and so uh, I, I remember really clearly, like, the, the first time we we got out of the uh, of our little bubble of a uh, of a neighborhood here and actually you know, went for a walk around the city um, and saw that wow there's some there's actually some bars that are open right now and the weather is nice enough that people are outside on the sidewalk drinking beers and we went to Shake Shack and and grabbed a, a burger and you know, we were out and about for like three hours and it felt so fucking good. I know. Um, so I can't was, wait for that. I can't wait for that moment. I mean, we have it a little about bit. Three weeks ago. I mean, we're yeah. probably not taking it seriously enough, but um, you know, we are able to go for the best part of my day is to just go for a thirty-minute walk in my my neighborhood, socially yeah. distanced, of course. Now, what would you say? And this is the question I really want to close with. Um, what would what advice? What is the biggest piece of advice, or the two biggest pieces of advice? you have for us individuals as we go through this now and we're behind you, what do we need to learn from you to get through this? Well, I, I'd say um, number one, um, take it seriously and, and, and don't fight the recommendations from medical experts, right? Just um, put up with the inconveniences, um, put up with the fact that uh, it's, it's going to be economically challenging um, for, for most people, um, just take it seriously and, and hunker down for the next couple of months because it seems to have worked here in China. Um, and, and I'm scared about what happens if, if we don't do that. That's number one. Um, number two, don't set any rigid expectations around timing of when things are going to get back to normal. Um, because, uh, you know, it's, it's only natural to do and we did it here as well. Right. So I, I remember the first six weeks or so of this, you know, it was like every single week we were trying to figure out, Hey, is next week going to be the week that things get back to normal? Is next week going to be the week that we can go back to work? Is next week going to be the week that we know when they're, they're going to open schools back up again? Right. Um, and life got a hell of a lot easier for all of us here when we just stopped doing that, right? And we realized, okay, this we're in this for the long haul, <laughs> right? Um, we're not going back to work for months. We're not going back to school for months. Uh, we're going to figure out how to rebuild the, the economic disaster a little bit later. 
Um, right now we got to focus on this health crisis, right? Once, once we had that clarity and, and just stopped looking at the calendar, um, life got a lot easier to manage. And so, um, you know, it, it was a nice surprise when things happened, like my Orange Theory gym opened back up, right? Or shout out to Orange um, Theory. Office <laughs> opened back up, right? Those types of things, right? But, um, um, you know, it was the wrong thing for us to do to try and plan that out, right? Because you can't plan this fucking virus, right? And um, um, you just have to adjust. You just have to adjust to the situation as it unfolds and be um, extra aggressive about uh, trying to, to defend against it, right? And uh, one, one interesting um, thing that I've, I've read people write a few times on social media over the last few weeks is, um, which I completely agree with, um, you only know if you're successful in fighting against this virus, right? If it feels like we've taken two extreme of measures, right? Um, and so if it feels like we're doing too much for too long, then maybe, maybe, maybe we've, we've got right? And so, uh, and so that's just, what it's gonna take. I want to make sure that we call to, you know, the audience's attention, your own deeply personal experience that you're going through with this right now before we yeah. uh, wrap it up. I mean, you, you still have roots in America. You have a son who's in the um, Seattle area and yeah. is, you know, you just talk for a second about that and is, you know, likely experiencing, you know, going through COVID right now. Yeah. 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 I've, I've got, uh, I've got a 15 year old, I've, I've got two kids back in, in Washington state right now, but, but one of them that, um, I'm, I'm pretty fearful is, is going through, through COVID right now. So he's, he's on about uh, eight days so far of, of severe, um, symptoms. He's, he's had a, a, Fairly regular fever of about 103 degrees or so. Um, headaches, nausea, severe difficulty breathing, um, you know, not able to, to sleep very well, and you know, extreme lack of, of energy and and sluggishness. And you know, I've, I've talked to him every single day, and he's been through some some bad stuff in his life before. He had typhoid fever um, here in in China um, about seven years ago. And, and he tells me what he's feeling right now is the worst that he's ever felt in his life. And every day, um, he feels a little bit worse than the day before, right? It, it, it's been over a week and it still feels like there's no light at the end of the tunnel. Um, so he, uh, his, his mom you know, has, has done everything that she, she can in terms of uh, taking, taking care of him, but it, it just feels like the, the options are extremely limited right now her her pediatrician back in in washington state uh referred my my son to a, a hospital there to uh to go get get checked and, and tested and you know a couple of times he's he's been and he's been refused because there there aren't enough uh there aren't enough tests and he's either not close enough to death or he's just too young very sad qualify, do you right? wish he was in shanghai right now I absolutely wish he, he was in Shanghai right now because I um, I feel like right now this is the safest place in the world to be. It, it, it is, um, you know, and it, it sucks that I'm probably stuck here for a while. China has closed their borders to uh, to all but but nationals, so if I leave, I I, I can't come back um, for the foreseeable future. But it's 
there's no place in the world I'd rather be. And yeah, I, I wish, I wish my entire family, um, were here. Um, but they're not, <laughs> they're, they're back in the U S and, uh, you know, I'm, um, I'm, I, I'm worried for them, worried for them both in terms of the, the lack of access to, to medical care, as well as just, uh, <laughs> the fact that, um, there doesn't seem to be a super organized, coordinated nationwide, right. Um, social change yet. That's, that's, dramatic enough um to, to slow down the spread uh, i think there are pockets of it happening in, in some areas like yeah, I'd, I'd say the bay area is probably further along than most of the rest of the country but um you know you, you see pictures like kind of mine posted a picture from the the brentwood farmers market down in uh la from over the weekend and you know it, it was freaking packed right um I, I don't think we've we've gotten it yet. What what, what it's going to take? So yeah, I'm I'm scared. Well, I hope it I hope it doesn't get there. And we're gonna we're gonna close on that note. And my hope is that you know, since this is the first episode, and you know, listeners are hearing this as their first um, interview, that the snapshot into the future is is a little bit bleak unless we take action now. Um, it seems, and so, um, and even even where Austin is right now, we still have work to do. So I hope we really do come together and overreact. And um, Austin, I want to thank you for your, for your time. Hey, absolutely. Camille. It's, it's been great. Thank you for yours. So I hope you enjoyed today's uh, interview. Uh, Austin's obviously a very smart and thoughtful guy. Um, and I, I'm trying to take away some hope from my conversation with him in particular. Um, it does sound like things are opening up again uh, where he is. And though it may be years till we return to what we call quote unquote normalcy, or we may never even return there. Um, you know, th- there is hope in the world and uh, we are going to beat this and there is light at the end of the tunnel. So it's not like we're all going to be stuck in our homes forever having to do whatever it is we do, work, um, entertain our kids, homeschool, et cetera, forever from the confines of the four walls that you're in right now. I think we will get through this. Um, if you like today's episode and you want me to keep recording, um, I would love to hear your feedback. I can be followed on Twitter at subes01, S-U-B-E-S-0-1, or on Instagram at Sunil Silicon Valley. And I'd really appreciate your support as I get this thing off the ground. And if it gets to become a thing, then I will do many more episodes and got a couple more coming this week, which I hope you enjoy. And thanks for your time.